This morning we continue in our study of the book of Romans, and the passage before us continues with that very familiar now uh, question and answer pattern that we have been uh, come very accustomed to. Once again, the formula is, what shall we say then? What shall be the conclusion of everything that has just been uh, gone over, everything that we have just been instructed in? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? Uh, Paul anticipates uh, and introduces a question that is a likely misconception that people would have as a result of what has just been taught. Is the law sin? Is the law a bad thing? Why would anyone ever question whether or not the law was a good thing? Well, the previous section had made it sound like it was terrible being under the law. And in particular, it stated that the law aroused our sinful passions. Look with me at Romans 7, starting with verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, now this, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So it said that the law aroused our sinful passions. Earlier, still, going back to Romans chapter 5, it was stated that the law came in order to increase sin. Not to restrain sin, but actually to increase sin. Listen to Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded much more. But the law was given to increase sin, to make more sin. So the question is, if the law was given to increase sin, and if the law actually arouses sin from within, isn't the law bad? Isn't the law sinful? Uh, isn't the law a terrible thing? So Paul answers that question and says in typical fashion, may it never be, by no means, King James, God forbid, absolutely not, that's the wrong conclusion to draw. And the right conclusion is finally given to us in verse 12. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It's quite the opposite. The law is not sinful. The law is holy. It's good. It's righteous. It's appropriate. So the theme this morning is, in what sense is the law holy and good? What is it about the law that is a good thing? And the answer comes in a number of ways. First, the law is good because of the way that it reveals what sin is. The law is good because of the way in which it reveals 
what is sinful. Notice Romans 7, 7. <clears throat> what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law defines sin for us. It lets us know what is sinful behavior. Earlier in the book of Romans, we learned that our conscience serves as a means of revealing sin as well. But our conscience gives us a sense of what is right and wrong, but without any specificity, only in a generic sense, and certainly not in the most accurate sense. For our conscience can deceive us. Our conscience does not necessarily work in the way that it should. Our conscience can be faulty. Our conscience can convict us of things that we should not feel guilty about and fail to convict us about things that we should feel guilty, but we're very comfortable in doing. Our conscience is weak. Our conscience is flawed. Our conscience is not a good barometer for understanding what is sinful. However, the law reveals sin in the most accurate manner. The law accurately and specifically reveals what are sinful behaviors and attitudes. It makes life's choices black and white. The moral law of God provides us with an objective standard of right and wrong. We don't have to wonder what is the right way to behave as people created in the image of God. The law of God is quite specific. It says such things as, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And on and on. So the Bible reveals, identifies, teaches us what is sinful or inappropriate behavior. Secondly, the law of God is good for it not only reveals what is sinful, but it reveals our own personal sinfulness. So the law is good because it reveals our own personal sinfulness. More than simply understanding what sin is, more than just defining for us sin, it also reveals the fact that we ourselves are sinners. Paul came to understand that he was a sinner because of the law. Now notice Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what was sin was except through the law. Now this statement, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said thou shalt not covet. The word known in verse 7 is a different Greek word from the word know that's found earlier in verse 7. Earlier, it said, I would not have known what was sin. That is stating that 
The law provided instruction. The law provided wisdom. The law provided the truth to determine what was sin and what was not. So the law provided the instruction that was needed. The word known in the second half of verse 7 is a word that means to know not by instruction, but to know by experience. To know by experience. So through the law, Paul came to understand in his own experience, he was convicted. He was struck. He became painfully aware and it became quite apparent that he himself was a sinner. He came to realize not only sin out there, but sin in here. And the law revealed to him that he was a sinner. Therefore, it was good. How did that happen? How did the law reveal to Paul that he was a sinner? Well, the law provided an opportunity or an occasion to be either obedient or disobedient to God's command. Notice verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. When Paul learned through the law, when he learned through the commandments what was sinful and what was not sinful, it then provided for him a choice. That's the opportunity of which it is speaking. He had a choice now, and that was to be either obedient to God's command or to be disobedient to God's command. Knowing what God wanted him to do, now the issue was, was he going to do it or not do it? So the law provided that opportunity for choice. He then provides us with an example. Verse 8. Through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the command that Paul is specifically having in view, he's talking now in an autobiographical way. He's giving us his testimony here. And Paul is talking about the effect that the law had in his own heart and life. And he said, when he heard the commandment, that thou shalt not covet... The result was, all kinds of covetousness came to light. Notice verse 8. The commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The commandment is the 10th commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Paul's response to that covenant was to covet. It was not to be obedient. It was not to submit. But when he heard that you shall not covet, it just made him incredibly aware that there was all kinds of covetousness in his heart and in his life. For notice verse 8. It produced every kind of covetousness Desire is what the King James says. I mean, excuse me, the NIV says. But it was not the fault of the law. 
The law did not produce the desire. Sin produced the desire. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The subject of the verb is sin. Sin produced all kinds of covetousness in me. It wasn't the law. The law provided the opportunity. The law shed the light on what was taking place in his heart. But it was sin that produced this covetousness. Paul not only understood that he was a coveter, but also that he coveted greatly. Notice in verse 8 it says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetousness. So the effect in Paul's life was not to keep him from coveting. The effect for him was that he realized that he coveted in a variety of ways. As there were listed a variety of ways in which you should not covet in Exodus 20:17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not cover his neighbor's servant, and on and on and on, Paul realized that he coveted in numerous ways. It was not the law's fault. The fault was in him. The fault was his sinfulness. The law simply brought that sinfulness to light. Until the law came, sin was dormant, unrecognizable. Paul was unaware of his sinfulness. Notice verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced me all kinds of covetousness. And now here's where we get the point. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin lies dead. Without the law, sin is dormant. It is underneath. It is dead in terms of our awareness of it. We don't see it. We don't feel it. We aren't aware of our sinfulness. But when the commandment comes, then all of a sudden, that which is brewing underneath boils to the top. When he had to deal with, the law said, you shall not covet, then all of a sudden he had to face in reality, but I do covet. I do covet. And I covet in many different ways. So the law was good because it brought to light his covetousness. In Romans chapter 3, earlier it had said, you don't need to turn there, but listen to verse 19. For all this keeps building on each other. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. The purpose of the law is to bring everyone to a halt and recognize their sinfulness. Which brings us to number three. The law of God is good because it reveals our lost condition. So it reveals what is sin. Then it reveals that we are sinful 
And then the law reveals our lost condition. Because we are sinful, then we are condemned. Notice verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Again, here is Paul's autobiography. Here is Paul's testimony. Here is Paul's spiritual pilgrimage. And he says, there was a time in my life when I viewed myself as spiritually alive. There was a time in my life that I thought that I was right with God. There was a time when I thought that everything was fine. Apart from the law. Apart from understanding God's commandments the way I should. Now, to understand this spiritual pilgrimage a little more, let us turn to Philippians chapter 3. So, there came a point in his life when he understood, uh, keep your, your finger, I hope you kept your finger at Romans 7. So I'd like to go back and pick something up there before we look at Philippians 3. Keep your finger in Philippians 7 and, uh, excuse me, Philippians 3 and Romans 7. Back to Romans 7. There came a point in Paul's life when he understood the commandment that said you shall not covet and when he did understand that commandment and his own sinfulness he recognized that he was spiritually dead notice verse 9 I was once alive apart from the law I, I thought I was fine I, I, I thought I was in a right relationship with God but when the commandment came sin came alive and I died then I realized that I was breaking God's command now the tables turned dramatically. Before he had thought that he was going to merit eternal life through keeping the law. Before he thought, I'm fine, I'm doing what the law says, until he internalized this whole aspect about coveting and realized that the law is not about external things but internal things. And then notice verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be destiny. So the very commandment that he thought was going to bring him life as a result of keeping it demonstrated that he didn't keep it. And that he wasn't alive. That he was under God's condemnation. That he was actually spiritually dead. Now let's look at Philippians 3. And uh, as we work through this, I'll just make a comment or two to try to bring this into more contemporary focus for us in our culture and time in which we live. Here is Paul's testimony. Paul thought that he was right with God because of all the external ways in which he was demonstrating righteousness, all right? He was looking at the things he was doing and he was looking outside. He wasn't looking at his heart. He was looking at external things. For example, starting with uh, verse four, 
of chapter 3 of Philippians. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, that is in my, my own uh, physical activities and conduct, if anyone thinks he has reason to confidence in the flesh, I am more. And then he thought about the reasons for this confidence. Reasons that he thought before that he was right with God. The first, verse 5, circumcised. Paul was circumcised. Paul was circumcised. And not only was he circumcised, but it says in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. The day in which God's word said, you shall be circumcised. Um, early in Romans, we saw that there were a lot of Jews who put confidence in the fact that they were circumcised. And they would think that because they were circumcised, they were right with God. Paul says, well, I was circumcised. And not only was I circumcised, I was circumcised when I was supposed to be circumcised. I was circumcised exactly the way the law said on the eighth day. And I was. As today, there are many that would look to the fact and say, well, I've been baptized. <laughs> or I was dedicated as a child. Uh, so I'm right with God because I've been baptized or I've been dedicated as a child. Paul was circumcised, as I said, when he was supposed to be on the eighth day. Then it goes on to say that Paul was a Jew by physical descent. Philippians 3.5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was a Jew by birth. He always had been a Jew. As there might be many today that would say, well, I was brought up in a Christian home. I have Christian parents. I have Christian grandparents. I can go back generations of Christians in my family. I must be right with God. I, I was brought to church by them. I was dedicated, baptized as a child, and my family's been in this church for years. Paul was a Hebrew-speaking Jew, Philippians 3.5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, a, a Jew was referred to as a Hebrew because of the language which they spoke. All right, they spoke Hebrew. <laughs> So, Jews were Hebrews. But after the exile, after generations were carried away in captivity into Babylon, after the intertestament period of 400 years, after coming under the domain of Rome, many, many Jews uh, no longer spoke Hebrew. They lost the ability. Uh, they... They didn't speak Hebrew. They, most of them spoke Greek. And so we have uh, what are referred to as Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hebrew-speaking Jews looked down on the Greek-speaking Jews. They weren't really Jews. <laughs> they weren't really Hebrews. Now, they didn't know the language. Uh, they only knew Greek. And so that's how we got the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Because in the time of Christ, most Jews couldn't speak Hebrew. So the Scriptures 
were translated into Greek for them. And most of the quotations in the New Testament are actually from the Septuagint. They are actually from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For so few Jews could speak Hebrew any longer. Well, what's the correlation in, in our day and age? I would say to you, those people that think that they speak Christianese. <laughs> uh, what's Christianese, all right? Uh, the lingo, all right? Uh, the people that pride themselves that I still use the King James, all right? The people that know all the lingo, they, they know what to say. They, they know the right words when you pray, right? They, they know the catchphrases. These are people that really know what it means when you talk about traveling mercies. All right? They know the lingo. Paul knew Hebrew. Paul was of the strictest sect of the Jewish people. Verse 5 of Philippians 3. As to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee. A strict adherent. The person that says, I always tried to be good. Never gotten into any real trouble. I have participated in Embark every year. I go to a fundamental church. I don't go to a liberal church. Paul was extremely committed to and sincere about his faith. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You see, he was sincere about what he believed. He was so sincere that he dedicated his life to, to try to oppose everybody that, that didn't agree with him. Today, there are a lot of people that think all that matters is you have faith. <laughs> you have faith in God. It doesn't matter what that God is like. It doesn't matter what you think that God has done. It doesn't matter whether or not that God is a triune God or a monolithic God. It doesn't matter whether or not that the God came to, to die on the cross for your sins. As long as you believe in God. As long as you're sincere. As long as you're dedicated. As long as you're committed to something. You must be right. You must be acceptable to God. Paul says, I was the most committed person you could find. I was zealous. And at one point, he thought that's what was going to get him to heaven. And then he goes on to say, at the end of verse 6, as for legalistic righteousness, that's the way the NIV translates it. I, I really appreciate that. It says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's talking about all the externals. The things that he was taught that he should do, he did. And he could say, I'm blameless. I did everything they told me to do. Until he read, thou shalt not covet. Then he realized, that's me. I covet. And then that commandment that he thought was going to bring him life brought him death. He said, I'm not right with God. I'm not blameless. I'm not sinless. I'm sinful. I'm sinful. 
I am a coveter. And so he came to place his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law was good, for it showed him his condemnation. So let's look at the conclusion. There are four steps in this conclusion, if you will. We'll look at each one. The conclusion is in verse 12. So, I like the way the uh, NAS translates it. It's the most literal. So then, all right? So here's the conclusion of the matter. Here's the point. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So is the law sinful? No, it's not. It's holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So now let's unpack those four things. First, the first conclusion is viewing the law in its entirety. Viewing the law as a whole. The law as it is given, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all that reveals what is the will of God is holy. It's right. It is sacred. It is truth. The second conclusion is that each specific command found in the law is holy as well. Notice verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy. So now Paul is focusing on that tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Not only is the law holy, but he's saying even that commandment that produced all kinds of sinfulness in my life, that's holy too. Because it wasn't the commandment, it was the sin within me. The commandment didn't make me covet. The commandment showed that I was a coveter. And we all know how easy it is. All we have to have is somebody tell us don't do something and it becomes the very thing we want to do. But it doesn't create within us that rebellion. It just brings it to light. It just causes it to bubble up. So Paul says, that was a holy command. That was a good command. There was nothing wrong with that. And he affirmed that it was good. Yes, I should not covet. But I do. But the commandment is holy. Third, he says that the commandment is, is righteous. Righteous. Meaning just. Just. Paul realized that he was rightfully condemned. He realized that the sin was not in the law, it was in himself. 
And so in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says that's just. That's right. I am rightfully condemned. I'm not going to be saved by keeping this law. I deceived myself. All these years, all these activities, all these good things. No, I'm a sinner. The scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's nothing that reveals that like the law of God. Which brings us to the fourth point. The law is good for it works as it was intended to work. The law is good for it achieves God's purpose. Notice at the end of verse 12. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous. And now we're looking at this word good. Good. As we think about the word good, good can have a lot of different meanings and connotations. It does in English and it does in Greek as well. And usually what we jump to are moral implications and connotations. Well, certainly the law is moral. We looked at that. In fact, it's been emphasizing that. It's holy. It's righteous. When it's talking about good here, it's not talking about in its, in its ethical Makeup. It's not talking now in terms of what is right or wrong. Good now is being used in the sense of appropriate, useful, beneficial. It's the way in which we talk about a good car. When we're talking about a good car, we're not talking about a moral car. We're not talking about a car that doesn't sin. We're talking about a car that starts. We're talking about a car that gets you to where you want to go. We're talking about a car that's useful, a car that's reliable. And when Paul says that the law is good, he's saying the law achieves what God intends it to achieve. Turn with me in your your Bibles. Keep your finger here. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Roman, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. All right? Now this is being used in the exact way in which our text is using it. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's a play on words. The law is good if you use it correctly. (laughs) The law is good if you put it to the right use. The law is good at taking you where you need to go, as in the illustration of the car. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, 
Okay? The law wasn't given for the righteous person. The law wasn't given in order to make you righteous. But for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. The law was given to sinful people to show them that they were sinful. As long as you use the law for that, it's great. As long as you use the law for that, it's perfect. You want to show somebody they're a sinner, just open up the Ten Commandments. That's what the law is for. Remember, Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is given to make us realize that we are sinners. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we're out from under that law. For we no longer are dwelling on our condemnation. The purpose of the law is not to make us righteous. That's not what's going to make us righteous. What's going to make us righteous is putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's going to make us righteous in two ways. It's going to make, make us righteous objectively in the sense that now, because of our faith in Christ, we are no longer viewed as sinners, but we are forgiven. Christ bore our sins. And we are right with God. And we have the promise of eternal life. All right. So in God's sight, we are not sinners. That's objective righteousness. But by believing in Christ, we also are subjectively made righteous, meaning that we will actually begin to live more righteous lives. Through faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be changed. The law couldn't do that and won't do that. But faith in Christ will. The gospel will. Focus on the gospel. And once you are saved, don't go back to the law. Stay with the gospel. For that is where the power of deliverance is. That's next week. That's next couple of chapters. That's where we're headed. All right? But this morning, the point of this whole exercise is, is the law sinful? No. No, it's not. Is the law good? Yes, it is. Why is the law good? Number one, it tells me what sin is. Number two, it tells me that I am a sinner. Three, it teaches me that I am condemned. And I need a savior. The law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. For the commandment doesn't create sin. That's within me. It's my response to the commandment. So the commandment is good. The commandment is righteous. And it's useful when we use it appropriately. Dwight L. Moody was a rather famous evangelist. And Dwight L. Moody's Norm, normal way of operating was he would like to come into a town and have 
a crusade, uh, a gospel proclamation for two weeks. That was his normal way of working. The first week, he preached nothing but the Ten Commandments. The first week, he did nothing but talk about sin. The second week, he presented Jesus Christ, the Savior from sin. Dwight L. Moody said, before a man can be saved, he must understand that he is lost. The purpose of the law is to show us we're lost. If there is anyone who thinks that they're going to get to heaven in any other way than believing in Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you think that you can get to heaven, you don't understand that the law requires perfection. The law requires holiness. The law requires sinlessness. And maybe you can point to a whole lot of good things in your life, even as Paul could point to a whole lot of good things in your life. And maybe you can even say, I'm very religious. I pray, I'm committed, and realize that Paul said all those same things. Until one day, he came to grips that said, you shall not covet. And he said, I covet. Have you come to grips with your own sinfulness? When you heard it said, you should not lie, did conviction come and say, but I'm a liar? When you heard that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, have you come to the conclusion, I have never really loved God that way? I have never, ever, truly, truly given myself wholly, only to the things of God. The point is to Re, the point is to bring to surface what is so easily hidden underneath. And not to beat ourselves up, but simply to say, I need a savior. I need a deliverer. I can't save myself. Jesus Christ died to take away my sin. I trust in him to forgive me of my sin. That's what the law is for. And when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're then dead to that law. Next week, we'll unpack this more and more as we talk then about the righteousness that's going to be produced by grace. But this morning, nothing wrong with the law as long as you use it the right way to show us that we're sinners. Let's pray. Our Father... I thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray for any this morning that may be here and uh, 
never ever really came to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ alone as their, as their Savior. But maybe they've been holding on to some kind of vestige of their goodness. Uh, I just pray that this morning we'd realize that not one of us is good enough on our own. Though we might have lived pretty good lives and, and though we might have been pretty religious and though we might have been pretty zealous and dedicated, not one of us is sinless. I pray, oh God, that if there's anyone here this morning that they would realize today, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. If there's anyone like that this morning, would you quickly raise your hand so that I can see it. I'd like to pray for you, not by name, but I would just... Uh, love to bring you before the throne of grace. And is there anyone this morning that would like to receive Christ as their Savior? Quickly raise your hand so I can see it. I'll keep it up till I acknowledge it. Okay. Our Father, I just pray. I thank you for opening our eyes and giving us the understanding of our need. Thank you for the law. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. We're not. The problem is not in the commands. The problem is in us. We acknowledge that those laws are the right way to live. They, they are appropriate. And we realize that we don't. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to realize that we are free from that condemnation. <laughs> that that law no longer hangs over us. That now we have a new freedom to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, giving us a love and desire to honor and glorify you. Help us in the weeks ahead to understand more fully the right motivation. Help us to understand the struggle that goes on within our own hearts. And, O oh Lord, give us the victory. Help us to live more godly lives to your honor and glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.